Audi. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Hello to all the regular listeners. You now span over 70 countries around the world and also to any newbies. Please do subscribe to the podcast via whatever app you're using. It's absolutely free and I'm working hard to find you the most interesting, the most fascinating and the most brilliant guests for every Tuesday. Today's guest is a truly brilliant one. Here we go. Nine children to organise takes some, well, organisation. But whom better to negotiate such a feat but city superstar Dame Helena Morrissey? One of only a few women to have been CEO of an investment bank. She's a champion of gender equality and has recently written A Good Time to Be a Girl, a book about how women and men can succeed in work and indeed life by changing the culture they're leaning into. Awarded Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire last year, it's the fascinating Dame Helena Morrissey. We have an international audience on the big travel okay. podcast. So for them and for other people who might not know you, tell me a little bit about yourself, please. Okay, so my name's Helena Morrissey, and I always describe myself almost first and foremost as mother of nine. I've worked in the financial industry for over 30 years, but come from a very sort of small town background, really. You know, my parents are both teachers, my sister's a teacher, very on the face of it, standard, you know, uneventful, but happy childhood, and now have this big family, big jobs, and also have done a lot of work on gender equality, particularly in male-dominated areas. Now, why I wanted to interview, one of the main reasons was because I read your book, A Good Time to Be a Girl. I picked it up at the <laughs> airport recently on a trip to Spain, and I think I read the whole thing on the flight. It's supposed to be an easy read, but hopefully hopefully you enjoyed it. Oh, so I, I took notes, and I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old, so to, to read a book on a flight and to take notes was quite, it required some, oh, quite some well, dedication. Well, I think that says more about you than about the book. So. It was, it, I thought it was incredible, and I, I think you describe it as a follow-up or follow-on to Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, which was about five years ago now, mm. sort of encouraging women not just to lean in, or not necessarily to lean in at all, but to actually change the culture of the world maybe that they're leaning into. Would that be right? A lot of what Sheryl Sandberg wrote, I think, has been very impactful, and it's great that she used her status and her power to really start a real global conversation continue a global conversation but I think the reality is that a we haven't made that much progress in that five years and b in lots of ways the system that we're leaning into often doesn't suit not just women but I think many many modern men these days and arguably you could say something like the Harvey Weinstein allegations so forth a lot of that's to do with you know 
in that case, actresses obviously thinking, well, this is the system. I just have to play by those rules. And I think in many, many different walks of life now, then everything's up for grabs, really. And a lot of the young men that I work alongside or with, they say they want a different way of life, too. And with technology, with us sort of perhaps being able to treat work as an activity rather than a place, I think we have great opportunity, which we must seize and be bolder in our ambition around gender equality. One of the things I really liked about you, you saying the book and something you've done through work is actually when you were CEO is giving people the option of doing a four-day week. I know loads of parents particularly, not just parents, I'm sure plenty of people want more time to themselves, but I personally know lots of parents who want to do three days, dads and mums, and I think that's such a sort of fighting that culture of presenteeism that we have in the UK particularly is quite a significant issue. And I think, I mean, a lot of young people are encouraged to, you know, follow down the sort of professional route. I know lots of young women who are encouraged to perhaps be lawyers or doctors or accountants. And actually, I feel a bit concerned about that, that often they're going into industries which are quite rigid and narrow in terms of what you can do around changing things, whereas there are a lot of more natural thinking professions, but also creative industries and so forth. And it would be great to encourage young people not just to think, okay, I can you know, I can get a good job, I can go to university, but actually think a little bit more about how the world is changing and how they might play a contribution in um, furthering the progress. Um, I work with a lovely young man who's 26 years old. I hope that doesn't sound condescending. He's just so lovely in his approach. And he um, approached me saying he wanted to get involved with some of the gender equality work. He, he has a girlfriend. He's thinking about their future family, about their life together. And he says, I want to play a part in my family's upbringing, but also I want to support my now girlfriend, but presumably future wife, in what she does as well. And it's much more about partnership than what was a centuries-old patriarchy. I think it's forward-thinking to me to be thinking about kids and everything as a 26-year-old male. But you were busy having starting a wonderful, what's turned out to be a wonderful career, and having your first child at 25. Is that right? It is, yes. I mean, my husband and I got married just the year before, and I haven't had, it's no secret that my first, our first job wasn't planned but actually I'm really grateful that I started my family young I think that often again women we worry about the fear of you know we have the fear of what might go wrong we, we almost overanalyze situations sometimes and so many people ask me when's the right time to have the baby I mean even the fact that we have to ask the question <laughs> shows us that something's wrong uh, every life is personal every life is different and I just feel grateful now that because there was no choice, frankly, but to work. And it wasn't kind of like my career was some vanity project. It was absolutely essential to earn money. And, and at that stage, my husband had made redundant as well. So that became even more important. I was the breadwinner. I was really hungry to get on. And it made me work out where I couldn't change the system that I was in, where did I have to leave, and what avenues to pursue, really. I had to make, I had to make it work. A lot of us find ourselves in that situation. Mm. You just uh, deal with the, the hand you're given, don't you? Yeah, and of course, a lot of people look upon, you know, anyone sort of vaguely sort of made it and think, oh, it's always so easy for them now. And, you know, certainly I have more autonomy over my life now than I certainly did then. But nobody has success in a straight line. And nobody gets there overnight or very few people. And one of the messages I want to convey in my book and in everything I do and say is that actually we should not let you know failure sort of stop us from having another go and just ex expect not to go defeatist into anything 
but to re- recognize that we have to pick ourselves up and try again that nothing worth fighting for or worth doing really ever comes easy i want to get around to the nine children in a minute because <laughs> every person i've spoken to when i've told them i'm interviewing you and that it's got a travel theme so i, I need to bring the travel into a bit <laughs> has said how on earth do you travel with nine children but just before i get onto that tell me quickly about the 30 percent club because i think that's a very very interesting mm-hmm. initiative so um, this was something that was born out of failure, talking about picking yourself up. Um, I had been running a women's development network, um, really trying to help more women than just ones or twos uh, who were coming up to me and saying, how do you combine career and family? And I'd set up, like many people had done, a women's network within my own company at the time. Five years later, very little impact, and I was feeling a bit disillusioned. And then I was invited to speak at another company's event around their diversity week. And as I listened afterwards... I realized that there was a huge amount of effort and very little to show for it. And I started thinking, well, we must be able to do better than this and read really widely about how you get behavioral change and came up with this, you know, or I read something that Deutsche Telekom was doing around having 30% women at all levels if they could. It was a target to improve business results. And I thought, well, that's it. Let's reframe this in the language of business and let's involve men more. This was a male CEO at that company. And with a group of people, some of which who I knew well as friends and others I didn't know at all, a small group, 14 of us, we came up with this sort of, let's do the 30% club, which was almost playing on this idea that lots of the traditional institutions are clubs and it's actually quite exclusive. And it sort of worked actually quite quickly. There was a bit of resistance from some, but the chairman of the big companies became the members of it. And the goal was initially very narrow around let's improve the gender equality on boards. And over the next five, six years, it went from about 12% women on corporate boards to almost 30, 28% today. And it just showed me you can't extrapolate the past. Again, you should be more ambitious. I think there we were helped. The zeitgeist was right because of the financial crisis had really shown people that the old-fashioned boards, where it was really people who knew each other, the great and the good, it wasn't the right way to to oversee decisions. So again, I, I believe that we've got to look out for these moments to seize. I think it's something that's, it's not just about women, is it? It's about diversity in all senses, and that would be in, ter- in class diversity, I think, is a particular issue that we have Definitely, in the yeah. UK. No, I think, I mean, I've, I've said that, you know, if we're starting it now, I wouldn't do it just around women, but it would seem then as a very obvious place to start with women being half the population. 12% was, you know, obviously very bad underrepresentation. These days within the city, I, I run something called the Diversity Project, which is trying to address the lack of diversity, and particularly in the sphere I work in, fund management, investment and savings, across all dimensions. And socioeconomic, I think, is the hardest one because there is so much that's linked to societal issues, family issues, uh, education issues. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult one, but absolutely essential, I think, if we're going to create a really a good society and, and equip people, young people, with the skills for future wealth. It's, it's very, very similar in media. I mean, if, unless you have parents who live in London who can afford to put you up and mm. pay for your education and might have connections in production companies that, that get you the work experience, you, you can afford to do the often free work experience. It ends up a very sort of patriarchal, uh, yes, the people at the top. A dynasty creation. Yes, exactly. Yeah, people yeah. with the skills and so the talent. It's good to see that things are changing. Now, I must move on to travel because I could speak to you for <laughs> days about the women's issues and all sorts. Obviously, you didn't start off with nine children. So you've had one child, two children, yeah. three yeah. children. How has travel been for you with the children? We, we did have quite a few children quite quickly. And so we, we did go from to sort of family of five, at least, in quite short order. And at that point, we had never actually 
gone abroad apart from occasional trips with the older two and we were definitely nervous about just the whole logistics aspect and we used to take a house actually on the Isle of Wight a beautiful house rented just for a week and lots of friends people we knew would be there we're not great sailors but children love the water sports and it just really felt very relaxing just jumping on the ferry and going over and yet it was obviously very unadventurous <laughs> and so as the children got a little bit older although I have to say we were continuing to have our children so we're going with very small babies we did the similar but in the south of France for, for about five years and we found a, a lovely house we went by train because the other complication was my husband is nervous of flying so we put all this together and there are not many options and we would take the train that goes you know, I think it's just the Saturdays still from St Pancras right the way down to Avignon five hours and you don't have to change and then we would take this lovely house and have at least the sunshine and a little bit more sense of you know travel and explore a little bit although not extensively of course we try to supplement that with the older ones going off with their school trips and signing them up for things that might give them a bit more taste of adventure but traveling through in the airports and you see people count us you know they go you know often if I had a small baby you know on the, in a little baby carrier they go one two three four five six seven oh, and there's a baby you know we go up to the passport office and slap down the passports they say one family at a time please we ended up just sort of embracing it and just sort of laughing when people would ask us the exact same questions every time you know are they yours how many twins we don't have any twins and just laugh that off a bit but uh, I count people I have to admit when I see people my husband's the youngest of five and when I see people walking along one two three four five that's a lot of children he agrees you know it's a lot of children and that's five but you've got almost double that it's incredible Um, and of course now they're quite old um, in terms of you know we've got two at least grown-up children one who's married himself and then uh, my 23-year-old daughter with her partner just had a baby at, at Christmas. But we still travel. I mean, now, so for example, last year when we went to a different place in the south of France, which we continue to go to, but a little bit different dynamic and places more to place to explore from, there were 13 of us. And last year we went to Crete, actually, for the first time. I loved Crete. I loved the clear water and the, you know, the sun and the sand and the sea, you know, the beautiful colours. But to be fair, we have not done the big adventures that... I know people with smaller numbers of children have taken them in all sorts of exotic places. So do you still not fly or has your husband got No, he's got, he's, I wouldn't say he's completely got over it. He always goes very, you know, nervous, but he will do it for the family. So we, we do fly, you know, we flew to Crete. We've, the previous years we've gone to Elba, which is quite an interesting place off um, one of the Italian islands. And, and again, a place where we just do slightly different things so that the children will go scuba diving. I must admit, me and my husband, we, we are very dull on holiday in the sense that we like to guess, get some local food and talk to local people, but we don't, we don't want to explore too much. We have a very busy rest of the year, so it's quite nice to read and um, catch up with our children, have long conversations you don't, you don't take much time off on that subject so no. I, I was reading that you took maybe 10 weeks for maternity leave on average did you feel the pressure to go back or do you actually want to go back well actually by the time I had my last child who's now nine because I was doing a, a certain function that's regulated I could only take up to 12 weeks so I took 11 but then I didn't go back full time and again I think that's one thing that is an advantage although something that often women don't talk about if you have a children you know they're later or you're more senior then often you do have more autonomy over how you how you get the job done when inevitably when I was 25 I did not have that luxury and I think that's something that we should 
talk about a little bit more because it shouldn't be the preserve just to the senior people I know I've been able to get the job done and that will go for anybody and I think that is one thing with technology that we're getting a little bit better at but yes there was only one occasion when uh, I was a bit stressed about things at work and my husband said just go back to work we've got it all under control here and actually I went back probably a bit too soon for me physically and but it has felt more natural and evolutionary and of course my husband's the one well, I haven't mentioned that yet my husband's the one at home so it's not as if there isn't a parent who's really you know devoted to making sure that the baby is very happy and and, and I think he would say he's enjoyed taking on where I've left off I hear he's a Buddhist monk, is that right? Well, actually, he's always been very, very religious, very um, interested and devoted on the spiritual side. But actually, he was brought up Catholic and is, I would say, re-examining that. And so I think I should use this moment to announce his return to Christianity, really. But I think there are elements, both he and I have found that there's elements of different religions that that can seem right at the time. And and if uh, I know that's not a very purist approach to religion but this country we do have the benefit of in England of lots of different cultures lots of different religious faiths and a very sort of open uh, discussion I think we're very lucky that we're very free to believe in without any oppression persecution and I think that does believe in that you know dimension to life it allows you to a license to explore to read widely to talk to people and to make one's own mind up and also perhaps to change one's mind. Are you religious yourself? I am religious, but, but I, and I read and I, um, and I do pray and I do believe it. I don't, at the moment, go to church. But I suppose I have found maybe there's a parallel with politics that sometimes, you know, one doesn't map on very easily to a particular sort of view of things. But I was brought up in the Church of England. My parents both very uh, regular churchgoers. I taught Sunday school when I was a teenager. You know, I, that's my... That's my upbringing, but and I and I do think well, I just find it important, but I wouldn't impose it on anybody else. It's you know, it's a very personal thing, I think. So your upbringing, you were brought up in Chichester. That's right. Yes. What sort of environment were you brought up in? Was there the money or the inspiration to travel? I actually spent my childhood split neatly in two, really, where I actually was brought up in a, for my first few years, first until I was about ten in a little t- a village called Alverstoke, which is near Gosport, and very much on the seaside. So actually the beach was my park, you know, the way that people, get, children often go to the park. I went to the beach every day. Again, we used to go to the Isle of Wight rather a lot. My godmother had a, a little cottage in Wales, and we would go every year, and it was sometimes with her family and sometimes just ourselves. And although that doesn't sound, again, you know, big adventure, I would enjoy that, I and mean, it was always felt very remote. We'd, I would do a lot of walking in the mountains, I was very keen on doing that with my dad in particular, and I have very fond memories of that. My father's a Yorkshireman, so we also went up to the Yorkshire Dales quite a bit and walked there. And it wasn't really until I was a teenager and living in Chichester that we went as a family to Loire Valley, Normandy, different places in, in France. And again, my parents have never been particularly big on travel. I've enjoyed exploring England and the rest of the country um, particularly Wales, as I mentioned. Again, I, I feel actually the more, most travel I have done, wider travel, has been through work. And I have not been all over, but I've been to you know Australia and the Middle East and Far East. Uh, actually, we go, went to Morocco as a family a few years back. I should talk about that a little bit, because that was a bit of a different experience. A lot of travel in America, all, all over really, West Coast, East Coast. Middle America. That that travel for work is a different beast, though, isn't it? Often you're sort of in and out of hotels. I mean, yeah. people treat you very well, but it's a. Yeah. It's... You have to be quite disciplined to see anything. 
beyond your hotel walls. And I regret that sometimes, but then I've also, a couple of years ago I was in um, LA, I was uh, speaking at a conference and my eldest daughter, who's a musician, was recording an album there. So I made it, you know, we both of us, she came to my conference and I went and helped her move her Airbnb and, you know, traveled, you know, went and saw a little bit of where she'd been living and exploring. But yes, you do, you do have to work pretty hard to get any cultural benefits from traveling for work. The moment I thought I'd made it, and this is actually in a completely different career than I then unmade afterwards, but I was 26 and I was an event producer and I flew to Bangkok for the first time. It was my first long haul flight on my own and I was 26 and I was on a business class, flatbed, you know, drinking <laughs> champagne, watching movies. And I remember thinking, <laughs> I've made it, this is amazing. And actually I didn't really like that career and changed to a journalist <laughs> afterwards. But was there a moment in your career when you have those sort of, wow, this is it sort of moments? Well, I was, quite, I was lucky that one of my earliest sort of breaks really was um, starting as a real, uh, just finished graduate training course at my first employer's. And they sent me off to New York for a couple of years. And partly because of the fact that I was the only person they sent. And it was a little bit of an experiment, a very good experiment, very successful experiment, certainly as far as I was concerned. I, not just the glamour of it, but the learning a lot. But actually, yes, they, they treated me well. You know, I had the you know, service department for a few weeks while I found accommodation. I was able to afford, because it gave a different living allowance, much better accommodation than I was when I came back to London, really. And yes, I had to business class flight and yes it was so pretty early on I was thinking wow this is amazing but of course the novelty wears off and also I didn't always travel in great style or luxury I think we've all had our fair share of doing a lot of tedious travel as well so but it was a fun experience and actually again gave me a taste of what it was like to live somewhere else and although obviously we speak sort of the same language then it was very different uh, New York was very different I found it very different culturally I particularly haven't come from a relatively small city in the UK and I, I, I learned a lot about different different things and, I, then, and obviously explored the art world, explored the museums, explored as much as I could, travelled around a bit in America at that stage and, and that was quite fun but it was definitely very um, exploratory, it wasn't, you know, no one was a guide to me, it was just working out what I would do at the weekend and off I would go. How did you find the cultural differences within the company you were working for, the American way of working compared mm. to the uh, UK way of working? Well, I think one of the things that I learned is very early on in that first experience was that people would be very um, much more disciplined in, the, in London about you know, the hours spent at the work, certainly New York at the time. And we're talking about ages ago, we're talking about, you know, late 1980s, early 1990s, but people would spend the whole, I mean, the energy in New York at the time, I mean, this is the time when Working Girl, the movie came out, the first Wall Street, but they would spend their whole, almost 24 hours, it seemed, chained to their desk. Whereas I found in London when I returned, there was a much, I'm going to call it more civilised approach, but just a really a better balance in work and, and life. I think now we need to treat work as a dimension of life, not a separate sort of bucket that we talk about, work-life balance, but actually at the time and uh, when I returned I was quite relieved in a way that I felt was much more sustainable the pace that as one would get older and as one had a family that this was much more sustainable. I still know people working in America that only get a week's holiday a year that's just outrageous. Yes they do have a very limited holiday entitlement although they also have something called personal days which weren't bank holidays and were days you could take they weren't counted as holidays so they did eke it out a little bit I think but it was yes I think the cult culturally somewhat frowned upon to take your full holiday entitlement too. I think that's changed 
quite a bit. And certainly when I was working for you know American parent company, people were much more. It was much more international approach. I mean, I think we're talking about a time when a little bit more sort of inward looking. Perhaps we'll go back to that. I'm not sure, but you know, it, this has become much more global. So many industries: music, arts, finance. Technology, you know, everything has become more global since then. People need to find new ways of earning a living, don't they? And they are doing that online, and maybe that gives people a lot more freedom. Certainly in my world of travel, I see a lot of people online that I wasn't really aware of. They're building these huge empires on Instagram and, and managing to fund their lives when they, while they travel around the world and just tap out a few things on their laptop or it looks Which like that. marvellous, isn't it, really? I mean, uh, somebody said to me a little bit while, a while ago, and I quoted it in the book, actually, that you know, young people today don't just want a career, they want an odyssey. And I thought, how wonderful that was to have these big ambitions about your whole life. And I think that is, I mean, it's, it's not just great, but also necessary, I think, because technology is changing everything about how we consume, how we influence, how we socialise. And I think one of the problems is when people are still assuming that you know the world of work sort of carries on as it was before and yet we've got this whole nother layer of change jobs are going to be going jobs will be going and again if you assume which i know if you sat down with anybody they would say no we don't assume that but actually then we still carry on as if you know the pattern of work is such and if you go to a great university you'll get a great job and it's not like that i mean you have to come up with something that i think is is more creative often and to see that as an opportunity hopefully I mean I'm not glossing over the fact that some people will find it very difficult but if you have it within yourself to to develop your own niche and to be more thoughtful perhaps about what you can contribute as an individual not rely on a big company I think that will stand you in good stead. Certainly not very secure way of earning a living but it can be very Mm. rewarding and you know maybe the money isn't necessarily the you know, the big thing for young people these days. I'm making it up, I'm not a young person these days. But anyway. <laughs> well, I'm caught between having, those two worlds. Yeah, I think it's a question of having clarity on, uh, as much as one can ever about what's important to you um, at any one time as well. That might change. And certainly, partly because I have my family young, uh, the need to provide and make sure they had... Uh, and, and also, when I started work, interest rates were enormously high and they went up very briefly to 15% one day which is a completely opposite end of the spectrum that we are now and house prices were lower though so there's all these different you can't really map one generation's experience onto another and enabling people to feel confident that actually they may have quite a few experiments before they settle down or find their their thing and hopefully can have the wherewithal to do that I say I'm very conscious that people will have you know there are limitations based on how to provide for oneself let alone anybody else yeah I don't know how much people how people are going to buy a house of their own these days when I you know people just three or four years younger than me I was being thrown money by Northern Rock I managed to buy my first house because they gave me a hundred five percent mortgage on with very little evidence that it's not possible now and obviously that wasn't very responsible of them but it helped me out and meant that I could get on the ladder so one of the things, I mean, I, I don't want to advertise so much, but that's what I'm doing at the moment with my, you know, my day job is I've joined um, Legal in General, which is huge on insurance. And obviously everyone has to have insurance just to drive a car or to insure their belongings or go on holiday. So what I'm try- trying to, well, my dream is really, or my hope is that we can encourage people to, young people, women more, because we're under-invested, to actually invest in our own financial independence. So even if you have a little money, if you get into the habit of saving a little bit each month or being able to... It's a question of making that money grow, obviously. If you just defer your consumption of it, that might make you just feel miserable today and tomorrow. 
But if you can put it to work and, and try and look upon that as one of your other ways of increasing your wealth overall. So yes, you want to try and increase your income or earn enough money to do the things, but then make what money you do have grow and, and balance, I guess, your desires and needs. I mean, we used to never spend any money on holidays because we didn't really have any money. But when we had money, it was really important to suddenly improve our quality of life by taking some time out and spending time just, you know, even if it was fairly low-key in the sun. It can be a huge investment in one's well-being. So it doesn't always have to be investing to make more money, but investing in, you know, your future. Absolutely. So where has been the most culturally shocking place you've been to? Oh, I, I did find it a long time ago that I spent a little bit of time in Tokyo a long time ago, and I did find that quite difficult. I mean, it's partly language, but also just behaviorally. And I was a, then I was a, a young mother. I was a, obviously not Japanese, you know, and it was pretty difficult as a woman even. And yet, and if you were not Japanese and you were a working mother and they knew that and the whole thing, it was seemed stacked up against one. Now, this is a long time ago that I know, again, that they're trying to do a huge amount to improve women's participation in the labor force and make it a more egalitarian society. But I found it quite difficult. And then most recently, uh, more recently rather, we went as a family on holiday to Morocco and we would go for days where we didn't really see any women. On the, I mean, my daughters, I have six girls, three boys, we were all together for that holiday and, and uh, we also had a couple of friends of the children and my, so there were, I think we were 14 in total and we would go, you know, and not see any women or girls over the age of about three and it was very bizarre. You, you wonder really where they are. strange. Well, they were at home cooking. At home cooking, yes. And... You know, my younger daughters at the time found it very disturbing, actually, that we you know, said, where are, the, where are all the girls? And it didn't matter where we went. To, uh, we would just see one occasionally sort of creep out of the, you know, the kitchen or whatever. And it was just very, I found it quite disturbing, really. You'd have to hope that people are happy with that. But as a woman, I know that I personally am not happy <laughs> in the home, you know, being the, the sole provider of the mm-hmm. home comforts. It's a lot of bloody hard work. And surely people in whatever culture, women in whatever culture, must agree with that too. I don't know. I guess it's your Well, there are obviously changes. I mean, 30% Club now has 10 chapters around the world. And the societies, the countries where it's based, are very diverse. So it does include the Gulf Corporation countries. And clearly there are big efforts, or at least talk of efforts underway in even Saudi Arabia or so forth. But we are talking about, you know, basic you know, rights and opportunities. Often, not often, in, but in some countries, because it's obviously very varied, women have access to education, but they actually can't do anything with it, which is almost worse, you feel, because, you know, it's wonderful to be able to be uh, well-read, and to, but to be so frustrated that you can't get a, a job is, must be just terrible. And I think we do have to recognise in the West that we have a huge amount to celebrate. We sometimes get caught up in the, you know, me too, or, you know, some of the unfinished business. I'm all about working with men, not having a gender war mentality. I think many men want gender equality too, certainly in our, in the UK and the US and, you know, Australia, Canada, you know, there's lots of countries that one can um, go through, but we still have pockets, even in Western Europe, where working mothers are frowned upon and very hard to get childcare. And I think we have to recognise where we have made progress 
Talking of Europe, uh, that was the only thing that in your book mm. I went, oh no, she's a, <laughs> she supports Brexit. And it, but actually thinking about it, because I'm very much a, a Remainer, but thinking about it, it made me pleased. It made me feel a little bit more positive, may, maybe, that you clearly know a lot more about business and finance than I will ever. So you, have some, you must have some reasons to be cheerful and positive about Brexit. And is it going the way you thought it would do? Well, I think, I mean, just to clarify, my, my views are, are not based, obviously, on being anti-immigration, anti-diversity, anti-progression. In fact, it's the opposite. And I, I worry that the EU people have held that out as kind of the answer to progression and, you know, social equality and so forth. Actually, my experience has been quite different. I think it is very sort of telling people what to do. Now, that's not the impression most people have. Most people sort of thought, if that's the right word, the referendum on completely different platforms. And my contribution, I, I don't know, will ever be properly understood, but I was trying to have a proper debate and discussion about what kind of world we're moving into. And I, I'm, I remain hopeful. I mean, we have days of breakthroughs, days of setbacks. I would like, I mean, clearly Europe itself, EU, is not a static situation as well. We have a swing to the right in a number of countries, unhelpfully, I mean, sort of quite extremism. And I feel there needs to be more listening and more connection between people running things and the societies that they're running. And I still feel hopeful that that will come through as we move forward. Obviously, we have deals to sort out, frameworks put in place. I do believe that we have a, a huge amount going for us in this country, whether we were members, whether we're not members. And then actually, we should also concentrate on the domestic agenda. We've talked already about making sure young people are equipped for the roles that they will play but I feel it's quite complicated and a lot of the discussion and, and the anger around it seems to distill it into you know sound bites and often we don't get into you know the nature of how our society is changing and how a lot of people feel left out and for me I, I retain the hope that as the dust settles with all of this we will start to fashion a better way of connecting with each other distributing wealth more evenly you know having less gaps between north and south less dominance of certain sectors in our economy. But I'm not going to claim that we're there yet. So. Or will ever be. Well, <laughs> I hope that it gives you some hope. It did. It um, made me feel a little bit cheerful. You know, it's you, not what comes across it's in been the almost media. A little it's also shouty. It's also shouty <laughs> and horrible. And I'm, I hate the confrontation around it. When you are travelling for work, I mean, something that I find very difficult. Actually, I'd say very difficult, but sometimes very liberating and a lot of fun, actually. It's quite, it brings out all sorts of different emotions when you have mm. to be apart from your children. And, and not all of them are bad. But you do... You must miss them terribly as well when you've spent long periods away without your children. Definitely, and, and especially when they were small. But even now, I have this rule about trying not to go out more than two nights in a week for uh, work-related reasons, or any reasons, really. And, of course, that's not always possible when you're travelling. I did have to do a trip to Australia once, and I was there. I mean, it was, it was idiotic when you look at the schedule. I'm not proud of this. I was landing in Sydney and giving a presentation sort of two hours after landing, after having just... You know, made the full trip over and then going to Melbourne and I was basically there for two days and the whole thing was taking a week but it still meant that I was away for two of my daughter's birthdays they happened to have the same birthday although they are separated by seven years and I felt so awful missing it and I was also changing planes and the timing was such that I had the tightest window to call them just to wish them a happy birthday so it wasn't just I was away but I, was, I wasn't even going to speak to them and as luck wouldn't have it the flight landing was late I looked over the board and I literally had to run from I was changing in Hong Kong one gate to the next and as we were just about to take off I dialed and I managed to speak to one of them and you know the air hostess was saying please put down your phone you know kind of 
but you know it was one of those things where I thought oh I was just it was just meant not to be and um, I mean they had enjoyed their birthday but I had made a I mean now if people ask me I have a trip coming up actually that same t uh, week this year and I am going the day after their birthdays <laughs> you know it's just there are certain days that are absolutely sacrosanct in a family's life obviously with nine children nine birthdays count counts out quite a lot of the days but it's still those are the moments that I I still regret because you can't you know you can't have it that moment again and I think if I was them I would feel sad that my mother wasn't there well, you're also being a great role model, and my mum worked full-time, and she's a great role model even now. She's in her 70s and still working part-time, wow. and, you know, that's been very inspirational to me, and I'm sure it has been to your daughters as well. Well, it's quite nice now. My uh, eldest daughter, because she's a musician, sometimes gives interviews. I gave one recently to a national newspaper, and it was about my book and their, her being a mother now, you know, and how sort of any lessons learned. And, of course, you never know, because, you know, someone might tell you something want to hear perhaps but actually it was very nice of her she was talking about the role model thing and talking about how it's given her confidence to be a mother and continue her music career which is obviously really important to her and it, it was nice to have it played back that it wasn't just my wishful thinking but the truth <laughs> just before I get to my last question I've read that your favorite motto is leap before you look which I absolutely love <laughs> what do you mean by that I, I feel like I do it in my life all the time maybe sometimes I should look a bit more but leap before you look <laughs> I've seen myself, but also so many of the women and girls that I know, let the fear of what might go wrong put them off from trying, have a brilliant idea, worry about all the things that might not work. And sometimes I think we just, just don't go for it enough. A couple of years ago, I was asked to help teach a class on the 30% Club at a business school it was at Harvard, and I'd never been to a business school class like this before, let alone taught one. And one of the exercises was working out, they divided the group into five different pretend groups of the stakeholders, and each was charged with coming up with the things that might go wrong. And between them, they came up with 57 different things that might go wrong. And a few of them had gone wrong, but they were none of them were, you know, the kids of death to the project. And I just feel that if we could just focus on the objective sometimes and say, yes, I can handle what might go wrong, I'll, I'll take it one step at a time and I'll wait and see. So just go for it sometimes. And in most cases I've found, you know, there'll be a sort of, you know, safety net will come up or else if it isn't, we will pick ourselves up and have another go. Say, so, you know, leap for you, look, but do have mentors or advisors or sounding boards. There's anyone you trust, could be family, friends, work colleagues, somebody you've just happened upon at some event that you just hit it off with. But just somebody who you, often somebody who is your counterbalance. Together, we are stronger than, you know, none of us have all of the right things within ourselves. We, we need others. We're not islands. My last question is about music and travel, because mm. music and travel often seem to go hand in hand with people. I think it's because we maybe have more time to reflect on things, to sit and listen to music, maybe stuck on a plane. If you had to pinpoint a time on your travels in life, when a song has created one of those really special moments that music can do, where you've been sitting on a beach or on a plane or something tremendous has happened, something that's filled you with a sort of musical moment, what would that song be? Oh, that is a tricky one, let me think, because it's there's different things. It's a bit like food or smells, isn't it? Different things evoke. It may seem a little bit random. So my daughter Flo had done a support act, actually, for George Ezra when he performed at Somerset House in the summer concerts that they ran a couple of years ago. And actually, when I arrived in Australia at this hotel, as I was spending, I mean, I literally had 10 minutes before I was going on the stage, 
his song Budapest was playing in the in the hotel lobby and it was such a connection I felt so far from home and I'd been so stressed because they said they had fog and you know they might have to be diverted to Melbourne so I would have spent all this time getting to the wrong city and it was just so reassuring because then that cast me back to all of that and was just a lovely moment that's lovely thank you very much (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the big travel podcast thank you for having me I, for one, can't wait to see what Dame Helena Morrissey gets up to next. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Please leave us a review on whatever app you're listening to and see you next week for more exploration of life stories through travel. Travel.